that we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, looking at the second half of the chapter. We saw the first half of the chapter last week, that the Apostle Paul is primarily concerned with this being an orderly church, that they would order their church in the way that God has ordered his creation, and in so doing, they would exemplify, adorn the doctrine of God, as it were, that they would fill their church with honor. He commends them in all the things that they do. But now he tells them in verse 17 where we're going to pick up, in these things I do not commend you. What exactly is it then that the Apostle Paul is not commending this church? Well, if you would, follow along with me for the public reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper then that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give direction when I come. We're going to see this passage broken up into four parts. Here's essentially the Apostle Paul's logic. Beginning of verse 17 all the way through verse 22 He's going to point out that dividers despise the church. Dividers, those that cause divisions, not talking about black curtains. Dividers, those who divide the church, despise the church. And they do because in verses 23 to 26, in so doing, they oppose the work of Christ. They're opposing Christ's work. 
Therefore, because this is a big deal in verses 27 to 32, God disciplines dividers. He disciplines those who are divisive. So then he says in verse 33 and 34, here's the application, wait and eat as one. That's going to form our logic as we work our way through the passage together. If you want to follow along, you can do so on the back of your bulletin. You'll find that same outline there. And in all of these things, they can be summed up in one big idea. It's my sermon in a sentence, if you're taking notes. And it's this, that at his supper, the Lord Jesus Christ kills churchly divisions and makes many one. At his supper, Christ kills churchly divisions, and makes many one. How do we see that big idea of fleshing itself out? Well, we're going to see, first of all, in verses 17 to 22, a rebuke. The dividers despise the church. We notice there in verse 17, he says, I do not commend you. In fact, the entire paragraph ends the same way. Shall I commend you? I will not. So everything in between, verses 17 and 22, is Paul not commending their behavior. Now notice, if you go back up to the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, he did commend them earlier. Paul's like a good boss or a good parent, isn't he? He brings them in and says, let me tell you the things that I think you're doing really well before he drops the hammer. And that's exactly what he does in verse 17. I commend you. I can see that you're attempting to order your church according to, to God's word, according to, to God's creation order. That's what we saw last week. But in the following instructions, verse 17, I cannot commend you. Because, he says in the second half of the verse, when you come together, that is, when you gather together corporately as a church, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. There are factions among you. There's a me-first attitude. And he says, and I believe it. That phrase there, you see a little footnote. It says, and I believe it in part, if you have an ESV, that I believe a certain report. In other words, I've been hearing about what's been going down in your church. We've already addressed a number of issues already, especially concerning divisions about being of this teacher or that teacher, among other things. And he says, I believe it. So when I hear that there are additional divisions and additional factions, specifically concerning the Lord's Supper, I can't say that I'm very surprised. In saying, I believe it, we see that there are, it's a little bit of sarcasm. Verse 19, he says that there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And it seems a little odd in verse 19 for Paul to say that because it seems kind of positive. He's saying, here's how bad divisions turn for good. It's going to show who the true Christians really are. Is that what he's saying? I think it's better to take verse 19 as an extension of Paul's apostolic sarcasm. I'm sure he's saying that your divisions are proving who the real Christians are, because that was really their intention, that their divisions were, were dividing the haves with the have-nots, not just materially, but spiritually. Who are the varsity Christians, and who are the junior varsity Christians? He's going, yeah, I'm sure that your divisions are accomplishing that. What can I get out of this? What ultimately serves me? What, what kinds of questions 
or these kinds of questions, rather, are these not the kinds of questions that really matter the world, that they, they shape what we wear, they determine where we might be educated, who we want to be seen with, and, and who we don't want to be seen with, who to sit next to at school, and who to not sit next to at school, who to eat with in the break room, and, and who to turn around and perform an about face on when you see that person sitting in there, always jockeying for position so that we might build up our status in the eyes of others. It's a me first kind of attitude, and we've seen it pervasive one chapter after another all the way through this book, and it's ugly, it's divisive, and it has gotten into the church, this cultural value, this me-ism. They have the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper has been divided. It's so bad, Paul says in verse 20, that you can't even call it the Lord's Supper. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. These dividers despise the church, Paul says. He says, when you come to the Lord's Supper, it's more like a pagan party at the temple with a VIP lounge where certain people are at a place of privilege. Notice the circumstances all the way back in chapter one, we noted that Paul said, not many of you were of noble birth. But then the inverse of that is what? That some of them were. That there was any number of saints in this church, church members who were of noble birth. And most likely, the saints in this church, they would gather together corporately in one of the wealthy members' homes. And these church members with higher standing in society, they would be at home and they would eat and enjoy a double portion for themselves before the poor members from the fields and otherwise ever had a chance to arrive. They neglected the church for the sake of their own exaltation, believing themselves to be somehow varsity Christianity. If it's so in the world, then it must be so in the church. But the consequence is that rather than filling the church with honor, as we saw last week, they have filled the church, in verse 22, with humiliation. They've humiliated the have-nots. Some of you may have stumbled across an essay by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring at some point. And in it, he observes the world and how in it, different informal groups form and how people want to be in them in order to gain status. He says that they're often called that gang or or they or so-and-so in his set or The Inner Ring. And Lewis says that it's the wanting to be in One of those rings, it's the desire to be in the inner ring that leads us to stamp down on others. And that's what we see happening in the Corinthian church. We have an inner ring. And those who want to be in the inner ring are stomping down on others, humiliating them for the sake of their own self-exaltation. It's a me first, what is in it for me kind of attitude. So Paul says at the end of 22, shall I commend you in this? He says, no, I can't. I can't do it, because when you behave this way, you not only despise the church of God, but you, in verses 23 and following, you oppose the work of Christ. He says, for, we know that that 
word therefore at the beginning of verse 23 is connecting his thought to the previous paragraph. It's not a new thought. He's explaining now the error in theological terms of those who had violated and abused the Lord's Supper. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Those terms, received and delivered, that's technical language speaking of oral tradition. Only the Apostle Paul says, this is no tradition that I've received from other men. He's saying here, as he said elsewhere in Galatians 1 and other places, that what he received, he received directly from a revelation from the risen Jesus Christ. My word is his word. And this is the word that he gave on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's a key phrase at the end of verse 24, that it's a meal for remembrance. Notice in the paragraph, it's actually mentioned twice. At the end of verse 24, and again in the middle of verse 25, it's a meal for remembrance. In other words, it's not an offering to God that what you do when you come to this table is not like what you see happening in the pagan temples in Corinth. You're not jockeying for position, vying for favor from whatever God it is that you are sacrificing to so that he might be willing to bless you, your business, your family, etc., etc. He goes, no, 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 no. That's not the way this works. And all of your pride in this church, your me first kind of attitude, is treating the Lord's Supper as an offering. That whoever gets there first wins, and those who win get the biggest blessing. He goes, but that's not what the Lord's Supper is. That's not what this table is all about. It's not an offering at all. No, to to assume that the Lord's Supper is in any way an offering is to insult Christ. It's to insinuate that somehow his finished work is lacking and that something else is needed to enjoy and receive the benefits that he earned. No, rather the Lord's Supper is something that you and I receive. It's something that we approach in our need, knowing ourselves to bring nothing but our own sin and receiving all that Christ has earned in his life and his death by faith alone. Well, notice in that language, verse 24, he says, this is my body. And he uses the same language in verse 25, that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, that language of is is the language of signifying something. It's not literal. It's not saying that the bread literally is or transfigures itself into the actual body of Christ or the cup becomes the actual blood of Christ. It's signifying something, that the sign is pointing to a greater reality of the thing signified. And this is what he says. He says, first of all, this bread, it is my body. It signifies my body. Now, remember, when Jesus was saying these words to his disciples at the Last Supper, They saw Jesus holding the bread. They would have easily distinguished in that moment that the bread is not his body. His body is distinct from the bread. The bread, therefore, must signify his body. And what is he talking about? But also, he says, it is the new covenant. Notice it doesn't say, it is my blood. It is, this cup is, the new covenant in my blood. And so even there... The language doesn't work. It has to be a sign. It's not literal. All due respect to our Roman friends. 
And so remembrance here in verses 24 and 25, it's not simply recalling Jesus' work. It's not just an intellectual exercise where we rehearse the truths of the gospel as we approach the table, though that may be part of it. It's something that you and I depend on by faith and then live in light of as we go back out into the world. It's a meal that shapes not only our individual lives, but shapes our life together. And the Apostle Paul is saying, by you acting the way that you're acting and administering the Lord's Supper the way that you are at the expense of other members of this church, you're doing so in a way that opposes the work of Christ, that is functionally denying the gospel. But notice what else he says in verse 26. It's not only a remembrance, as we see there in 24 and 25, but in verse 26, it also proclaims. It is evangelistic. And so what is the work that Jesus accomplished? What is it that the supper signifies and proclaims? Well, we see it hinted at up in verse 24 again. He says, this is my body, which is for you. And those two words... Oh, those are key words for you because it implies substitution. And playing in the background is a number of Old Testament passages. So when Jesus is having his last supper with his disciples, he's doing it on the Passover. It's the last Passover meal. And playing back behind that is the Old Testament shadow of the Passover in the book of Exodus, Exodus 12. And the Exodus... God, through Moses, is going to bring Israel out of bondage to Egypt. But one last curse is going to befall the land, and that is the death of every firstborn in the land. And if Israel avails herself of the provision that God himself has made for her, that is, to take a spotless lamb, sacrifice it, and cover their home in the blood of that spotless lamb, then their firstborn will be spared that the avenger will pass them over. They'll be saved. Jesus is saying at his last supper with his Passover, in the same way that that spotless lamb was a substitute for the firstborn in Egypt, so am I then. And my death on a cross, which he's already predicted three times at this point in the Gospels, so is my death a substitute for all those who would repent and believe in me. It's pointing to my death on a cross in the place of sinners. He's saying to his disciples, and we're reminded every time we come to the Lord's Supper, I go now to lay down my life as a spotless lamb for you. But it also hints at that passage in Isaiah 53 of that suffering servant, this idea of substitution, the for you-ness of the gospel. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes, we are healed. He got what we deserved and we got what he earned by virtue of his perfect righteousness. Jesus, the perfect substitute who bore in his body the full force of God's right indignation of our rebellion against him so that you and I might be redeemed. All of that 
is packed into two words. For you. It speaks of substitution. And so how ridiculous then, Paul's saying, how ridiculous then to use this meal for any kind of self-promotion. This meal that signifies the very Son of God laying down His life for you as a substitute, seeking not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom. How utterly ridiculous and absurd is it then to use this meal as a means of self-promotion. We come to this meal knowing that we have nothing to offer Almighty God and that we come merely as recipients of His undeserved mercy. Can you see then how that should shape the life and the culture of a church, of our relationships together? I wonder if you're here today and and you're just kind of looking in on Christian things. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but investigating what this is all about and whether this may be true. Everything that I've just said, this is the work that Jesus holds out to you. The forgiveness of sin, freedom from its penalty and from its power over your life. Peace with God. And so I wonder, would you trust his death as a substitute for you in this way? A little bit later when we take the Lord's Supper, I would just ask you to hold on to that. Put it on the shelf. Keep it in your mind. Because what you're going to see playing out in front of you are these truths in three-dimensional fashion of sinners having been saved by the grace of God in Christ, receiving the benefits and the blessings of their salvation together as his covenant people, And that that's offered to you. Not because there's anything saving in the Lord's Supper, but it's offered to you in Christ. Should you trust in him alone for salvation. But notice, Jesus' death doesn't just redeem. It redeems in order to create something new, verse 25. The language of covenant there is the language of relationship. So we might think about our own wedding days, our marriages, that we make a covenant on our wedding day, and inherent in that covenant is a relationship, a new relationship between a single man and a single woman who have now become one flesh. That same kind of covenant framework, that language is used in the Old Testament. So consider again Israel coming out of Egypt. They were redeemed for a purpose. It wasn't arbitrary. They were redeemed for a relationship with the Lord who redeemed them. And shortly after bringing them out at the foot of Sinai, he made a covenant with them that, that they might know him. And they might live with him as his treasured possession. And that they might serve him. That covenant was sealed with the blood of bulls and that blood was a sign that their sin had been forgiven and of God's covenant commitment to them in the land. I am for you and with you in terms of this covenant. Well, all of that was a shadow that ultimately pointed forward to the new covenant, a better covenant, the fullness and the fulfillment of all of God's promises given to Israel. Jeremiah summarizes it best, the prophet Jeremiah. This is the glorious promise of the new covenant. That I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you hear the relational language? 
they shall all know me. Not merely know about me, but they will know me as the one who has redeemed them from the least to the greatest. And I will remember their sins no more. When you fast forward to the book of Hebrews, remember we just studied that earlier this year. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus' blood is better than the blood of the bulls that were sacrificed and whose blood was used to ratify that covenant with Israel. No, Jesus' blood was better because Jesus' blood brings a definitive forgiveness. And that means that this new and better covenant is utterly secure. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be annulled. And so when you and I take the cup, what it does is it, is it speaks to our identity together that you and I have been sealed by the blood of Jesus. Sealed by the Holy Spirit, united to him, applying all of the benefits of his blood to us that redemption in all of its fullness would be ours. It's God's people joined with Jesus. It's God's people joined with one another. We brought nothing but our sin. And we have been given everything by our Lord. That's what the supper signifies. And so it's not just a meal about me. It's not just a meal that we come back to our seats and we take and have our own little personal quiet time with, with Jesus. It's even more than that, profoundly a meal about what Jesus has done in each of us and of what he's doing in us together. And so Paul says these divisions and these factions, this me first attitude, Paul says I can't commend it because it is in opposition to everything that Jesus died for. It opposes Christ it opposes, it opposes his life and his death and his resurrection. It opposes the very nature of his covenant. I cannot commend you in it. So he says, this is serious stuff. So much so that we see in verses 27 and following that God sometimes disciplines dividers. And so Paul gives a warning, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Paul's not saying here in verse 27, make yourself worthy. He's saying consider your relationships in the church. Consider possible divisions or humiliations in the church. And consider how those things oppose what Jesus died for. He's saying this is really serious. So before you come and eat the meal, you need to not only examine yourself, but you need to examine yourself in light of the whole body. Verses 28 and 29. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the question in verse 29 is, what is the body referring to? Is it referring to the body of Christ signified in the, in the bread? No, I think our hint is all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 16. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many, here's the moneymaker, are one body. 
for we all partake of the one bread. To discern the body is to consider the church. It's to consider the covenant community of which you have been made a part. And so the question is, do we see everyone in the church's membership as they really are? Not, in, not as they are in the world, but in Christ. Do we see them as our equals? Do we see them as our beloved brothers and sisters whom Jesus died for? Do we see them as part of his body, even the weird members of the church, whoever that may be? The ones that you have a harder time getting along with, the ones that maybe you're tempted to avoid or take the long way around the sanctuary. It's saying stop and consider. Consider that every one of the members of this church is precious to the Lord Jesus Christ and he has purchased them with his own blood just as he did for you. Discern the body, who you are and what you belong to and how you're connected to all of these other brothers and sisters in the family of God purchased by Christ. Well, verse 30, notice it's a shocking verse. He says this, the fact that you're not discerning the body, the fact that you're doing this to the detriment of the body, the fact that you're despising the body and humiliating subsets of the body, he says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What? Well, verses 31 and 32, or 32 rather, help us get to the bottom of what he's saying. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. That word judged is the same word in the Greek as the word discern above. Paul is just making a play on words throughout the paragraph. But if we discern ourselves, think about ourselves rightly, then we would not be discerned or judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What it's describing is not God's wrath against sinners. What it's describing is God's fatherly discipline in the church. It's what God does, spiritually speaking, to correct wayward children. We see that in Hebrews chapter 12, don't we? I think this is a good place to put our minds so that we might think well about 1 Corinthians 11. So put your finger or your ribbon or, or your bookmark or whatever it may be right there in 1 Corinthians 11 and flip over or thumb scroll to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Go all the way to your right to the book of Hebrews. What kind of discipline is being talked about by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11? Let's begin in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Up to this point, he's trying to establish that if you are sons of God and the Son of God suffered and was trained and made perfect by his suffering, then why would you think that you as sons of God would be treated any differently than the Son of God? He aims to perfect you in his discipline. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Put your eyes there on verse six again. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. 
He says it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, and you're not sons, you're orphans. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? What he's saying is that if your imperfect fathers disciplined you so that you when you are wayward, would be corrected, and you go, that was a good thing, how much more your perfect Father in heaven, who always disciplines you perfectly and knows everything. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. In other words, earthly fathers do what seems best. They're lacking in wisdom. But the Lord disciplines us according to perfect wisdom. And his perfect wisdom always fleshes itself out ultimately for our good. Why? That we might share his holiness. That we would be like him. You realize your joy is wrapped up in being like God. And being like God means growing in holiness which means that your joy necessarily requires fatherly discipline, that he loves you, he's for you, he's for your joy. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but notice later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What is God doing? In this instance, in this congregation, Paul's saying, why are many of you weak and ill and some of you have died? He's saying that is God's fatherly hand in this congregation training you in a painful way to renounce unrighteousness that you would be corrected and that you would be holy as he is, loving what he loves, thinking his thoughts after him, caring about the things that he cares about above all his church. But what do we do then with verse 31? I don't think we can explain it away. Well, that, that'll never happen. But I don't think we should overinterpret it either, where every single cough or sneeze is understood as being God's discipline for a particular sin in our lives. On the one hand, we don't want to be overly dismissive, but we also don't want to be superstitious. And it bears, it's worth keeping in mind also that Paul was an apostle. He had a unique authority to make statements like this, and we are not apostles. And so we don't have the authority to make similar verdicts over other people. In fact, it may even be harmful if we did. But perhaps it does make us stop for just a moment and have us consider that if illness comes or is perhaps even widespread in our church, at the very least, we should stop and examine ourselves. Is there some way that we are living at serious odds with the work of Jesus? You want to look at another passage that'd be helpful on your own time, James 5.15. The apostle James there addresses the same thing of those who have fallen sick because of unrepentant sin in their life. And so it's not abnormal. Now, it may be the case some of the times or most of the times that this isn't the reality of things. But I think the Bible entertains us, encourages us to at least have it as a category. It's worth examining ourselves. So then what do we do then? 
verses 33 and 34. In light of all of this, knowing what we know, that dividers despise the church, those same dividers oppose the work of Christ, that the Lord is committed to disciplining as a father disciplines wayward sons, those who divide the church, sometimes in painful ways, what should we do then? What's the application? We see it there in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. That application to wait may seem really underwhelming (laughs) to you, but it's actually really profound. It's not the me-first attitude that had been embodying this church, that me-first attitude that the Apostle Paul could not commend. It's about serving one another. It's about honoring each other. It's about serving the body of Christ. And so imagine the difference. The wealthy open up their home to the church. They get there a little bit early because they're not the ones working in the fields. And those slaves who have been converted come in out of the fields into their church and they have to wait and wait and wait until their brothers and sisters, who might be in a totally different social stratosphere out in the world, they wait. As long as it takes, we're going to wait for you. As long as it takes. Because we are not the inner ring. We are not the varsity Christians. You are just as much of the part of the body of Christ as we are, and we're going to get into that in chapter 12. We're going to wait on you. And as people arrive, well, then what they don't see is the rich and the poor or the slave, or the free, or the person that I want to sit with and the person I want to avoid, they see the body of Christ. They see the people that Jesus died for, shed his blood for, just as he did for me. That's what I see. And so all of a sudden now, it's a a gathering of honor, not of humiliation, of self-sacrifice and love. Come in, sit here. I saved you a seat. It changes everything. Does not the world long for this kind of love? Does not our world long and seek feverishly for this kind of acceptance and unity? Beloved, it's only found in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when they are fully submitted to the gospel. It's only formed through the death of the Lord Jesus being applied to his covenant people. It's first spiritual. And it works itself out into the practical. Now, as I looked at this passage and just considered our own church in light of it, I'm pleased to say in many ways that I can commend you in the ways that the Apostle Paul could not commend the Corinthians. I see ways that so many of our members are eager to practice hospitality with one another. For your eagerness to gather with the church, for the sadness that comes when, for providential reasons, you have to miss. For the ways that you go out of your way to to invite in those who are maybe on the fringes 
or to see those who are new and learn about their stories. In all of these ways and many more, I see the members of our church discerning the body. In these ways and many more, I see the ways that that you give consideration not just to what I get out of this church, but how might I be able to serve others, to bear their burdens, to encourage them, to invite them. And so I commend you in all the ways that the Apostle Paul could not commend this church, I commend you. And I would encourage you, just as Paul encourages the Philippian church, that you would grow in love still more and more. Don't rest on your laurels. Let's continue to lean into Christ that we might become more and more like him. Well, now that we reach the end of it, what I want to do is I want to try to add some definition for our sake from this passage and elsewhere in the Bible on what exactly is the Lord's Supper then? How are we to understand it? I want to give you seven things. Seven things. So if you're taking notes, it's the number of perfection. Seven things. I cut out the eighth. (laughs) Number one. When we come to the Lord's Supper, it is a display of God's character. It's a display of God's character because in it, we see God's love and justice meet in Christ. For God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is a God worth worshiping. So number one, it is a display of God's character. Number two, it is a remembrance of Christ's death. That's what we just saw here. And by remembrance, what I mean is it's not a memorial service. Many of you perhaps have been in churches where when we think about the Lord's Supper as a memory, we treat it as almost like a funeral, like we're crucifying Jesus all over again. And people are sad and it's dirgy. And, and, and I don't think that's what is meant by remembrance. It's a joyous reminder that in his covenant of grace, we've received all of the benefits of his death for us. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so we do not come then to the Lord's Supper as have-nots. We come to the Lord's Supper in Christ as have everything. Because of Christ. It's not a funeral. It's not a memorial service. There's no dirge to it. It's a joyous reminder. It's an occasion to rejoice that even though we're sinners and we have nothing to bring to the table but our own sin, that Christ gives us everything according to undeserved mercy. And so it remembers Christ's death and all that he's earned for us in it. Third, it proclaims the good news about Jesus. Verse 26, you notice that again, that what the Lord's Supper does when it accompanies the right preaching of the word is that it, in essence, preaches a silent sermon about Jesus' death. And not only that, but notice in verse 26, his resurrection life too, because he's coming again. And that leads us to a fourth point that the Lord's Supper anticipates our blessed hope. 
It anticipates our blessed hope. You realize our Lord Jesus Christ right now is bodily glorified at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in this supper, we see signified our fully embodied and glorified redeemer. And we behold him and we see him, though not face to face, but by faith. Oh, but beloved, soon enough, we will see his face. We will behold him with our own eyes, glorified eyes that won't hesitate with an ounce of unbelief, of resurrected eyes that will see him in all of his glory, knowing that we have been redeemed to share in that glory. That it not only points backwards to the death of Christ, but it looks forward to the return of Christ. And that's why we corporately pray at the end of every one of our corporate gatherings, come Lord Jesus. Because at the supper, what we're saying is we want to see your face. We can't paint images of you. The second commandment tells us not to do that. But there's one place in all of the of the New Testament where Jesus says, here's where you can see me, a picture of me, and it's at my table. That's where you can see my body. That's where you can see what my blood earned for you. Here's a picture, a true picture, of who I am and what I'm like. Oh, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to our blessed hope because we wanna see him. Fifthly, it is a means of grace. And when I say that, what I mean is that when you are redeemed by Christ, God is committed to you by way of covenant, he will not renege on it, to get you all the way home safely to heaven. But along the way, there's going to be all kinds of ditches and temptations and enemies that are going to aim to discourage you and defeat you. That the devil is going to speak lies to you The demons are going to aim to to seduce you and deceive you. And so we just saw back in chapter 10, wasn't it? And we take comfort in the fact that our Lord has not only appointed the ends and then left us to come up with the means, but that he himself has appointed the very means to that end of our perseverance. The Baptist Catechism question 93 asks, what are then the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Answer, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, all which means are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Now, that's not saying that you're saved by the Lord's Supper, that you're saved by baptism. It's saying that when you are adopted into God's family and you became his son, he's saying, I am going to give you and feed you with everything you need to be strengthened and to grow and to endure and to make it all the way to the end, just as we do with our own children. That with my own children, I'm going to give entirely of my own, and they will contribute nothing. Though they're teenagers, they contribute nothing. We contribute everything from ourselves because they are our children. So we feed them. 
And we provide for them. And we protect them. And we strengthen them so that they might grow. All of those are a means to an end. And the right preaching of the word and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are among some of God's primary means whereby he strengthens us to endure all the way home to heaven. It's a means of grace. All of that is what's meant back in 1 Corinthians 10 by that language of participation. It's not merely an intellectual exercise whereby we recall propositionally what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on a cross. It is a participation in the blood of Christ. It is a participation in the body of Christ. It is fellowship. And so communicates, when you hear that language of communicating, what it doesn't mean is that it teaches or it talks about it. That's not what it's talking about. But it's to make us participants in it. To communicate carries the idea of communion. To enjoy what it is that Christ has won for us that he now shares with us by the Spirit through his word in his ordinances by his obedient life and his vicarious death. It means that though we are once and for all forgiven of our sin, we come to the Lord's Supper knowing that every time we come that he will keep forgiving our sin if we confess them. We know that he invites us. He's the host of the supper and so feeds us by his word and on his sacrament that we would grow and be strengthened and become holy. So fifthly, it is a means of grace. Sixth, it is a whole church meal. You notice all the way back up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or in the first paragraph that we looked at, the error of the Corinthian church was not merely their attitude beneath how they administered the Lord's Supper. The error, more fundamentally, was their failure to discern the whole body. And by thinking that they enjoyed the Lord's Supper, some subset of the church, at the expense of the whole body with, with whom they've been united, then Paul says, what you think is the Lord's Supper is not the Lord's Supper, it's just food and drink. So the question becomes, what then makes the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper and, the, and not merely just bread and drink? The answer is the whole body of Christ together. It is an ordinance that Christ has given not merely to individual Christians, it is a sacrament given to whole churches. This is one of the reasons why, for instance, when a couple asks me to marry them, which I'm happy to do, I will not administer the Lord's Supper at a wedding. Because the Lord's Supper is not meant for weddings. It's not meant for individual Christians getting married at a wedding. And though it might be done with the best of intentions, I trust that it always is, to administer the Lord's Supper to this couple while withholding it from the rest of the body is to fail to discern the body. It's also why in our church we don't, uh, why we discourage uh, fathers administering the Lord's Supper to their own families. It's why we discourage small groups from taking the Lord's Supper together because it's a whole church meal. It's not merely an individual sacrament to be 
applied according to individual whims as we see best fit. It's a whole body sacrament. It's a whole church meal. This is why, for instance, several years ago, you may remember during COVID when we were trying to navigate, as many other churches were, how exactly is it that we are going to move forward? Are we going to, how long are we going to be online, which ended up not being very long? Are we going to go outside? Are we going to come inside and distance? And, And like many other churches, we thought through all of those things But there were two things that we wouldn't do. Number one, we discouraged anybody taking the Lord's Supper at the expense of the church. And secondly, uh, we would not do the Lord's Supper over, uh, over the internet because the whole church should be together at the table. And thirdly, Um, until the whole church could come and gather again, we would not administer the Lord's Supper. We will wait for you. To bring it home a little bit more closely, as I preached on this text uh, in one of our first Sundays gathering outside during COVID, to try to emphasize some of these things that we're talking about. And in that study, I grew convicted and we began to talk as elders that every time we gathered as a church, we functionally excommunicated a subset of our church from enjoying the Lord's Supper together. Namely, all of those saints who volunteer in the children's ministry, which isn't even a ministry required by the Word of God. And so we have saints leaving the gathering to serve in a children's ministry, and we can't even wait for them to join us at the Lord's Supper. And so we made a change in our order of service. That's why now when we're done preaching, we sing and we go retrieve our, our children from them, bring them back into the gathering, and we, and we wait for our members serving our families to come back into the gathering because of what we see in verse 33. When you come together, wait for one another. If we were to functionally excommunicate any subset of our church that is present and willing to take the Lord's Supper, then it's not the Lord's Supper that we eat. We violate its intent. It's a whole church meal. Seventhly and finally, it's a symbol of a congregation's authority. This is why it has to be a whole church meal. That Christ has empowered every local church with a certain authority to make declarations concerning true and false Christians, true and false gospels that every congregation has the authority to bring members into its own church and to see members out of its church and sometimes under tragic circumstances. Those tragic circumstances sometimes look like church discipline where an individual member of the church persists in unrepentant sin. They've been confronted, they've they've been shown God's word time and again, corrected, rebuked, admonished, and they continue to persist in it. That the whole church ends up collectively speaking, turn from sin, turn back to Christ, and still they refuse. And if they do, then according to the mind of Christ in Matthew 18, that whole church who spoke to that wayward brother or sister must speak one last time by casting judgment over that individual and removing them from the church, excommunioning them. So the Lord's Supper, when we come together, is to say that all those who come to the Lord's Supper are those that are in 
and, and good standing in the membership of our church or in the good standing of other, members, or of other gospel preaching churches. It's one of the reasons why I try to build close relationships with other pastors in the area. You know, when we first planted, one of the things that, that I thought about often is how do we cooperate for the gospel's sake in our city? And maybe that looks like mercy ministry and evangelism, and certainly it could. But one of the primary ways that pastors and churches work together is to uphold the care and discipline of one another's flocks. So anytime we have a prospective member, we call the church. Hey, we've got brother, sister, brother and sister here. They're from your church. We just wanted to see, uh, are they members in good standing? Is there anything that we need to know so we can take the very best possible care of them? We want to make sure that we do that. And we do that with every member that comes into our church. We do that with every member going out to another church. Uh, and we want to be really careful with that. But in all of that is to say that as a whole congregation... In upholding discipline, maintaining it, at the center of it is a table, is the Lord's Supper. Is permitting or denying? And those are godly judgments that Christ has entrusted every church with. And so the reason why we take the Lord's Supper when the whole church comes together is because the whole church, when it comes together and gathers, the whole church speaks. That when we come forward and the members of our church take the Lord's Supper, it's our whole church speaking. These are those who represent Jesus on behalf of Covenant Baptist Church. It's a symbol of a congregation's authority. And consider, beloved, what a sweet privilege that is. And what a serious responsibility it is. That we don't have the right to play fast and loose with the Lord's Supper. We need to bind ourselves as close as we're able to God's word that we might be able to honor him, to love one another, to build up the church, and to adorn the gospel for a watching world. The Lord's Supper helps us do that. As I've told you before, if baptism is how the one is brought into the many, then the Lord's Supper, which we're about to enjoy, turns the many and makes them one. Let's pray.